0: The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Call me Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we analyze and celebrate the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch.
1: Hi, and I'm Molly Balin.
0: This is Minute One. Thank you all for joining us in this very exciting beginning to this movie. We kick it off with the famous MGM lion snarling, and Minute One ends with part of the opening credits with the name Ernest Borgnine appearing on the screen. Ernie! Ernie! <laughs> yes. Uh, and let's just tell everyone right off the bat that uh, although the bulk of the credits, especially this first minute, uh, is the actors in the movie, we have decided to get deep into the actors as they uh, pop up in the movie instead of in the credits. Spreads it out a bit, lets us get uh, some of our guests that we'll have on in the future talk about the uh, actors instead, instead of just cramming it in here in the first few minutes of the movie. After the famous MGM lion does his roar, we have a bit of an interesting start to the credits because there's more than 10 seconds of just black after the lion fades out, and then the ominous escape from new york theme starts in and it starts out with just like a deep hum and then it's joined in by kind of a higher pitched hum and then that full theme kicks in and uh we'll, we'll kind of get deep into the music uh, of this opening theme tomorrow but that is indeed how we start and molly we get who's presenting this movie right off the bat
1: yes uh we are starting with uh, the money <laughs>
0: where would hollywood be without the money
1: indeed we're going cash first here so i think this is going to be a cash heavy minute in general Uh, so uh with our slow fade in of sweet 80s synth there is no discernible saxophone in this which i'm somewhat grateful for but also a little sad about but we start out with avco embassy And Avco Embassy Pictures slash Embassy Pictures Corporation slash Embassy Films Associates, which are producers, distributors, um, is uh, who was involved with, well, one of them who's involved with producing the film. Um, And it was founded in 1942 by Joseph E. Levine or Levine. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, Nor am I. (laughs) They were, uh, they've got actually quite a long and storied history, um, which also includes a tasty Coca Cola beverage at some point. And I don't know, I think we both ended up doing a bit of research on this, but I was actually kind of surprised about the complexity of the history of this particular production company and how many times it splits off into. Craziness, really, in the 90s, but it's actually pretty storied from 1942 to now. But they are known for several quite interesting movies. Uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, The Graduate, which is actually where they made a lot of money initially. Producers, The Lion in Winter, Carnal Knowledge, The Night Porter, Watership Down, which is kind of a sad movie. Uh, Phantasm, which scared the crap out of me as a little kid. The Fog, (laughs) Prom Night, Scanners, The Howling, and Escape from New York, and... Shout out to this is Spinal Tap.
0: And Time Bandits.
1: And Time Bandits. <laughs> also good. Also good. Yeah, they yeah. have their
0: they're really strange. You're right. Very strange history. Like you said, Joseph Levine slash Levine founded it. Just to distribute foreign movies here in, in America, and as you said, one of them was the American version of Godzilla. That's the one where they added in uh, Perry Mason so that Americans uh, could have someone they could relate to, I guess, in the movie.
1: Because uh, he's so relatable. Yes, because Perry Mason is so relatable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, Raymond Burr, right? I can't believe I called him Perry Mason. And then I, he decided— I knew what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure everyone knew what I meant. Actually, Perry Mason, probably more recognizable name than Raymond Burr.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah
0: a while after a couple decades he decided to make movies himself and as you said the graduate that was probably his biggest success and this guy joseph levine levine actually got a golden globe cecil b DeMille award that's how for lifetime achievement that's how much this guy did over his career
1: wow that's awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say like he made like a crap ton of money too. So uh, <laughs> it enabled him to sell uh, to the Avco Corporation, is where where you get the Avco Embassy right. from for forty million in nineteen sixty seven, really on the backs of uh, the success of the Graduate. So,
0: and yay! I, I don't have a inflation calculator in front of me but 40 million in 1967 as we record here in 2019 uh, that's got to be more than 100 million i assume
1: oh my god it has to be i would presume that would at least be two and a half times yeah i mean if the housing market is any indication (laughs) i would say that's probably accurate
0: (laughs) i mean the sale of a production company look look what disney's paying for fox you know not that not that embassy was at the level of fox but still he there was a funny quote i I found online about that 40 millions though he called it a horrible mistake that made him rich so i guess he regretted selling it but you know it's easy to get past your regret when you've made 40 million dollars
1: yeah bro like cry in your golden toilet like (laughs) (laughs) i have only so much empathy for you i mean you know i appreciate that you know you work hard and you made you know obviously like Amazing films. And yeah, I mean, I I don't know if it was like his baby, but I understand it's like maybe this was like a huge, you know, source of meaning for his life. And then now all his meaning is, is crying tears on his hundred dollar bills. I don't know. i'm a little cheated. uh but hey you know blessings and
0: then you're right you're right he sold it to avco which is why it's avco embassy and the company ended up changing hands several more times it kept getting sold and interestingly in a, in a tie to my previous movie by minute podcast the final sale in 1986 was to a certain mr dino de laurentis mm-hmm. uh, who anyone who came over with us from flash gordon minute knows was the producer of flash gordon and he just folded it into his company and that that basically was the end of embassy pictures
1: yeah which is a little bit sad Um, there was a a point in here too where uh, Coca-Cola bought embassy for like a year for 485 million so that's a
0: big profit from the 40 million
1: it is yeah, that's kind of crazy. So Coke was actually the one who ended up selling uh embassy to Dino back in the day. And and he did Dune as well. So like mm, love the Dune. Um but yeah, Flash Gordon and Dune were, were Dino jams. But yeah, it's uh I don't know how you felt about that, but I was a little bit I don't know, maybe the, the liberal in me <laughs> had some tears about like, why stay in your lane, Coca-Cola? Why are you buying media? You know? But yeah, I, I was just a little like, oh, that's interesting to, to think about how many times this thing is, has split off. And, and now again, the rights have split off to uh, the French studio, Studio Canal which is also kind of interesting. But um, at, at the end of all of this, at the end of this whole story, why we see MGM, MGM at the beginning is that some of the best-known embassy titles are controlled by MGM for home entertainment rights.
0: Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, the thing about Coca-Cola, I, I always find it weird when you see those non-entertainment entities getting involved and i mean if they sold it only a year later my guess is they were probably looking at solely as a as a flip mm. um you know I, I doubt that you know but it's it's these sales are so complicated with these big companies i don't think you're buying something and selling it a year later already making the decision well this was bad let's get rid of it mm. uh but so it, it's it is strange like i know that not seagram's own like a lot of music doesn't oh. of thing, right so i you know yeah that seemed very strange to me that seagrams uh, has a very big footprint in the music industry there's just something strange about that unless uh that came about because of bruce willis's uh, uh seagrams answer <laughs>
1: the 80s i totally remember that it's really funny i still have a like a seagram seven and seven i have this bruce willis connotation to this day because of that oh. that's just it's <laughs> hijacked my mind so weird um and there's a little diehard in there too that's yeah interesting so yeah money's money's um and then there's also a mention of goldcrest films in the beginning here, too. And Goldcrest was uh, founded by Jake Eberts in 1977. And I think he was a money dude. Speaking of money, he was a money guy. He made his money making money. But uh, Goldcrest is also known for uh, winning Best Picture for Chariots of Fire in 1981 and Gandhi in 1982. So obviously 1981 was a banner year for, or the beginning of the 80s was a banner year for Goldcrest films.
0: Yeah, and they're, st- they're still around making movies. And uh, they're, they're- the movie that they made that I took note of was my personal favorite of, um, from the list I saw is uh, The Killing Fields. I think that's one of the best based on a true story movies I've ever seen.
1: Is that the Cambodian?
0: Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: Wow. I haven't seen that. Is that. Yeah,
0: very good movie.
1: Well, since we are on the topic of the sweet monies, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the budget for Escape from New York, uh, which was approximately $6 million and it grossed $50 million worldwide. Uh, the release dates were kind of interesting. I believe I mentioned in the pilot that uh, the first release was actually in Japan and it was released on May 23rd, 1981 in Japan. And then it moved to France, June 24th, 1981, and then finally made it to the good old US of A on July 10th, 1981.
0: Speaking of... Of that uh, release week, uh, an interesting little footnote. So it opened at number five in America, but it only opened, it was only on 579 screens. So its gross per theater was far and away the best of that weekend. And this weekend had Superman 2 out, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Stripes, The Fox and the Hound, The Cannonball Run, For Your Eyes Only, Great Muppet Caper, SOB and Clash of the Titans. That's the top 10 from that week. So it was by far on the fewest screens of those top 10, yet still came in fifth place. And the interesting footnote is that you heard me say the Fox and the Hound. Well, Kurt Russell is the voice of uh, one of the two main voices in the Fox and the Hound opening the same exact week. So that was a pretty nice weekend there for Kurt Russell.
1: Oh my God, the competition. When do we ever see that type of competition for films? I mean seriously I mean maybe like 10 15 years ago but right. you know what I'm saying right I mean at the time of our recording, Captain Marvel is out basically today I believe yes is, is the starting of that um, and and I don't know what kind of competition there is for Captain Marvel I mean There's probably
0: none and this in the way that the the system is now everybody stays away from the major releases
1: yeah, it's so fascinating to hear I mean Superman 2 was epic. <laughs> I mean, Phantom Zone. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, and to have that with Indiana Jones, I mean, and this good God.
0: Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't think that all those opened that weekend. That was just the top 10 uh, box office for the weekend. But still, all those 10 movies being out at the same time.
1: Still, that's a quite a bit of competition all at once. And, you know, some classic films.
0: Uh, and then unfortunately generation
1: yeah, anyway <laughs> yeah
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and then unfortunately after it was number 5 its opening weekend it dropped down to number 8 in its second weekend and then number 9 by its third weekend so it did, it didn't it, even though it, it, it had a good gross um you mentioned the worldwide box office domestically it made more than 25 million so clearly an incredibly successful film But it did. I I think it was the lack of the screens for, you know, maybe it was one of those movies I didn't think would play well in certain sections of the country or something like that. But it wasn't given quite as wide of a release.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I can see that kind of contextually, uh, given that there's this really low budget, gritty background that these guys because, I mean, John Carpenter rolls with a posse and this posse of people. I mean, it's kind of amazing as we're going to talk about this over the course of uh, the podcast and then, you know, most especially these couple of minutes about how many people really went on to just do some of the most, like, amazing, iconic 80s work that worked on this flick. And then, right. you know, these guys come in really, you know, hot off the back of, of I was going to say Hawaii, <laughs> <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> It's so cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's a good segue, actually, because uh, the first that after we're done getting these production companies, we get the name John Carpenter pops up on the screen. And it's you know similar to the the trailer that we discussed in our pilot, where the, the trailer was really wrapped around the fact that this was a John Carpenter film and that that was the big selling point. We get John Carpenter's name here on the screen for four seconds of it just saying John Carpenter's. And then after four seconds, the Escape from New York pops up. This was the thing. This this was a John Carpenter movie. This is what it was being sold on. And uh, at this point, obviously Halloween was, that was the big one. It had come out three years before. He had made The Fog, which actually I've never even seen uh, just a year before. And he'd made Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976 and the Elvis TV movie in 1979, which is where he first worked with Kurt Russell. Uh, But I have to assume, uh, having only been a five-year-old when this movie came out, so I certainly don't remember contemporarily, that the the name was being sold on Halloween mostly.
1: Right, right. And I think that really made a lot of these guys the the money alone the turnaround from that. And obviously we can see here for a 6 million dollar investment, 50 million is obviously you've made your money back and right. then some. And I don't even know if that's really including any type of like home sales or any of the other, you know, digital rights or any of that other stuff that, you know, continues to pour in over the years. So you know, remastered that kind of thing, but um, I mean, economically, that obviously looks really good.
0: And then obviously the studios were happy with that performance because you know uh, it's interesting. He, you know, he's Halloween's probably his biggest movie. Would you agree with that assessment? And then I maybe-
1: would. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you know, he never really quite achieved that that level of success again. But you know, he had a string of movies that are you know considered to be very good movies after escape from new york came out next year the thing the year after that christine the year after that starman
1: mm-hmm. two years after
0: that even though it was a bomb bo- uh, box office big trouble in little china has a huge cult following mhm two years after that my probably my second favorite john carpenter movie they live several other movies over the years as well so you know the, the guys had a nice long storied successful directing career
1: he has Definitely. Definitely. And I didn't realize he did Christine until I started doing the research and which is totally makes sense in in the context of all of this. But yeah, he's, uh, he's been quite prolific. And then I think he's done like 19 soundtracks. So he's kind of like a, he's kind of unique. And I know we're going to talk about the music in a little bit, but he's kind of unique in being a director who also is a musician And takes that level of care and construct to do soundtrack. Because I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who has done such a good, number one, such a good job of soundtrack and is a, you know, a director in the way that he is.
0: Yeah, I agree. I. I like off the top of my head, I can't think of that either. And, yeah, he he does all of his own movies. I like that. It means he knows what he wants. You know, I'm going to do it myself. I, I I know what I need to fit the tone of my movie. yeah, it's 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 very impressive,
1: yeah. It's incredible. Speaking of production and uh, selling one's name, After this, there's a note about a Deborah Hill production. This just made my feminist heart just soar because (laughs) Deborah Hill is getting a pretty profound billing here next to John Carpenter and deborah hill is a part of the uh halloween posse as well the john carpenter posse uh she has a writing credit for halloween um but she produced that um she also has a writing credit for the fog i also haven't seen the fog now i feel like i have to see the fog i know i feel
0: we have to watch it now uh
1: she uh has some highlights of production that include clue which is uh Uh Amazing. If, if you guys have not seen Clue, Clue is a classic as well. Uh, Adventures in Babysitting, also a classic. Big Top Pee Wee and the Fisher King. Uh, She was honored by women in film in 2003. And she has this really great quote that says, I hope someday there won't be a need for women in film, that will be people in film, that it will be equal pay, equal rights and equal job opportunities for everybody, which I think is still something that is uh, quite present as a discussion today within uh, Hollywood. Yeah.
0: What uh, do you know what year that quote was from?
1: 2003.
0: OK, so and, and then I know she she died in 2005. Uh, mm. So she said this 16 years ago. And unfortunately, that quote would still be relevant today because, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's still we're still keep making, you know, we still keep seeing in the news all this stuff about these big time actresses having to fight for equal pay with their male co-stars.
1: Yeah, it's still, I I mean, I just was thinking about like X-Files and uh, Gillian Anderson, and that was a really big deal about, uh, you know, when David Duchovny came on and him having, you know, more roles. I think he might have done California before then or, yeah, I think he did California prior, Uh, but he had, uh, I think, Red Shoe Diaries and he had some other credits. And so he got paid. With more like top billing than she did, but obviously this is a collaborative TV show, and I remember it being a huge deal with her with trying to fight for you know a little bit more equal pay on that. So this is something that you know has has been an issue for quite a while. Um, I don't know. I just that just triggered like. In terms of discussions of, of getting equal pay, that was something that had come up for me. Uh, another kind of interesting anecdotal story was, uh, speaking of, of Pee-wee Herman, there was, a, when they were filming Big Top Pee-wee, she actually pulled him, Paul Reumens aside, and it was like, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, how you show up to set, and you're, like, if you're in a bad mood, it basically will affect the mood of the set. So just, you know, FYI. And something that I heard over and over about her is that she was was tough, and she really, you know, was breaking a glass ceiling in a lot of ways as being a female producer, but also had quite a bit of grace. And it was something that, you know, Paul Rubens really took with him going forward. All other jokes aside about <laughs> <laughs> his background. I, I, was, I, was like, I,
0: I was like, you know, I'm not going to go for the easy joke here. I'm not I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to
1: do it. <laughs> Obviously, there wasn't grace everywhere, but perhaps it was in a professional capacity on set. <laughs> But uh, I, I thought that was interesting that, uh, as a producer, she was, you know, just just reminding him of people are looking up to you, and you need to just kind of be your best self. So I think that speaks a lot about her,
0: yeah. and and uh, as you mentioned, she was, you know part of the Halloween crew. And obviously, she and John Carpenter stayed working together because she also worked on Escape from l a all those years later. Uh, and I found a great quote online from John Carpenter about her. Uh, she called her, uh, she said, uh, he said, one of the greatest experiences of my life. She had a passion for not just movies about women or women's ideas, but films for everybody. So he just mm. loved working with her.
1: That's awesome.
0: That's pretty much our first uh, minute of credits here. Uh...
1: So thank you guys so much for checking out Minute One. You can follow us on Twitter at ny minute pod, Facebook group Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And please rate and review us on iTunes if you feel so moved. So be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall.